I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. Now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Yeah, welcome to another episode, another stretch run, playoffs on the horizon episode of the Touch 'Em All podcast, and this is going to be our second. Are we calling it a mailbag, Derek, or a Q and A? Like, what are what are we calling these episodes? Mailbag is what I tossed out on social media tonight, but I realized that I've, I don't think I've ever in my life collected any sort of mail in a bag at any one point. So it's like kind of a misleading. It's sort of an antiquated name, but. People know what we're talking about when we say mailbag, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think there's a lot of people who were probably born after 1995 who don't even really, like, use snail mail. And snail mail is what you would put in a mailbag. And if we were just to ask for last-minute true mailbag questions, we wouldn't really get them for a few more days. (laughs) Yeah, just put your postage on it and dress it to 1500 ESPN, (laughs) University Avenue in St. Paul. (laughs) <laughs> so we're hanging out here. We're actually watching. Uh, we're, we're in separate locations watching the Twins and the Tigers, game one of seven games between these two teams in the last 10 days. And uh, we're not going to do a whole lot of play-by-play on this unless something crazy happens because you're going to have already watched this game or seen the result by the time you listen for the most part. But they're doing what they should do, which is beat the tar out of the Tigers over the next couple weeks. And they're uh, they're doing that tonight. They've already scored six runs, and it looks like a seventh one here. So, anyways, before we get to the mailbag and the Q and A portion, can I start with just a mini rant, and then just to get us fired up here, just to get us ready to roll? <laughs> okay. Because uh, go ahead. If you do your rant, I also have a humble or not so humble brag that I have to get into, and we'll take some questions hereafter. Sounds good. Okay. So one of our loyal podcast listeners and uh, and radio station listeners, uh, Michael McGivern, who actually came in, he won one of our charity auction sit-in studio uh, things about six months ago. So we got to hang out in person, got lunch. So he, he's an awesome dude, super smart fan. And he did the research for us and found that the Twins against the Yankees, who they just got swept by this week, since 2002, including playoffs, are 33-88 and 88 against the Yankees. And ordinarily, I'm not a big believer in uh, the notion that like one Major League Baseball team that makes the playoffs on a regular basis is somehow vastly intimidated by another team. I mean, they're all professionals. They're all pretty cocky. And like it's, it's, it's not like the little giants where you walk in and there's this huge talent discrepancy. But when it comes to the twin struggles against the Yankees, and I include the three games this week in the Bronx, I think that 33-88 and 88 record over 15 years and multiple different incarnations of the lineup and organization, I think that futility goes deeper than just bad luck or Yankee superiority. It does feel like the Twins are blinded by the pinstripes to some degree. And let me give you, I know you might scoff at that, but let me give you a couple reasons why. So the Twins at 33-88 and 88 against the Yankees, that's a 37% win rate, so a 370 winning percentage if you Oof. were to uh, to extrapolate out to you know what you would see in the standings. In any given season, Derek, the worst teams in baseball, so think the White Sox this year, the Tigers, the Phillies, the Giants are pretty bad this year. The worst teams in baseball playing a full schedule that includes a lot of games against crappy teams to balance out your strength of schedule are winning 40% of their games. 
on any given night in baseball, including, I believe, tonight. Numberfire.com has actually Phillies and Dodgers and Chicago White Sox and Houston, so best versus worst, best versus worst. And the worst team any given night against the best team still has a 38 to 40% chance to win, even if the pitching matchup is lopsided. And so I look at that, and I see Twins teams over 15 years, and most of those are playoff-caliber teams. From 2002 through 2010, almost all playoff teams. And uh, 2015 was a near-playoff team. This year's team is a playoff team. And you're winning at a 37% clip? That just feels a little more than Yankee superiority or bad luck or or small sample size. I think even going back to the Garden Hire days, and I don't know what happened these three games this week. You just got beat by a team that uh, that that separated itself from the wild card race. It it just it feels like there's some pucker factor, and it feels like there's some choke factor there. End of rant. Well, yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, you say I might scoff at that. I did. I am. I don't think that there's anything to it right now, but I can't speak for the, whatever, 10, 11 years of that run before I was covering the team. I just think it's hard to believe for me that a guy like, take Irvin Santana, for example, I mean, maybe that's a bad example because I don't think anyone would suggest he choked under the pressure this week, like a Barrios or anybody like that. I think Bar- sure. I think Bar- Barrios has a little bit of anxiety factor in big games as a young pitcher well, so far. Yes, and he also has a massive hurricane devastating his home country right now. So sure. I think that he and several other players on the team are probably dealing with that more than maybe that they're letting on or that we'd maybe talk about in the media. Um, I definitely do think there's something to that. Borales gets too amped for big starts, so maybe that's a maybe another talker on a podcast down the road because I think that'll start to be important if the Twins find their way into the wild card game or maybe even into the division series. You really need good performances from Borales. Um, but yeah, on, on Yankee Mystique, I am not a buyer, a subscriber to that theory at least of the uh, Paul Molitor teams that I've covered. Maybe there was something to that with Garden Hire, and I think that it's possible if you have some veterans that have been on the team for a number of years and they just can't win in the playoffs, despite also, we should point out, they didn't always have healthy lineups going into the playoffs, so they were just overmatched by those better Yankees sure, teams. Sure, but, but uh, again, like, and they, and they, all, and they, know, almost, they almost always had disadvantages in, in the pitching matchups, too. Although Johan Santana team. did lose a game in uh, in which Javier Vazquez was his opponent, but still, yeah. like even if you're, my point is when I bring up the worst teams in baseball against the best teams, even right. if you are at at a disadvantage every single night, you're winning forty percent of your games. You're sure. winning, you know, you're and the Twins, the Twins are thirty seven percent against the Yankees, and and those are good Twins teams for the majority. I will say one thing I disagree with that you just said. Uh, about Yankee mystique, it's I, I, the three losses this week at Yankee Stadium. That just a preface. That doesn't mean you can't go back there in a week and a half if things play out the right way and beat them. I'm I'm, I'm not saying that like oh now if they face the Yankees like there's right. there's no way they can win that wild card game. Um, and so it remains to be seen if this version of the Twins will have the same experience for almost a decade as the last version of the Twins. But I do think there is some social proof involved with the Yankee mystique. I think when you walk into a stadium and you know that that organization over 100 years 
wins a championship on average like once every three or four years and is the most established baseball franchise in history. I think there's some social proof that even if you don't know many of the players very well that you're facing, you just sort of assume that the Yankees know what they're doing as a franchise and that you're facing the best of the best in every scenario. Unlike when you would face maybe the uh, the Chicago White Sox or sure. or the you know pick pick another crappy team um, um, like like if, if in the NFL when you go to face the Cleveland Browns like you you're you're pretty sure even subconsciously that you have the upper hand because it's the Cleveland Browns but I think there is a social proof in sports sometimes that uh, that that manifests as mystique and the Yankees would qualify as one of those organizations. Yeah, maybe for some players. I just don't think it's a broad brush that we can paint with. I don't think that does it for everybody. I don't think, uh, like uh, Irvin was the example I used earlier, but you could name, I could give you, you know, a dozen players of the past five years that I've spoken with at length about not necessarily this exact subject, but about how to block out noise and things like that so that you can perform at your best. And I don't think that it's as... Like it's it's just not a broad brush. I think we can you know, paint with. So I don't know. Maybe we can just agree to disagree on. That. Well, well, yeah, and we and I think we're going to have to. I think one last thing. Just uh, I did have the advantage uh, or disadvantage, maybe, of covering uh, the beat of the 2010 Twins team <laughs> yeah. that that went in, got swept by the Yankees in the ALDS, and the next spring I was on a flight to Fort Myers before spring training to spend the next seven weeks down there covering spring training as uh, as the 1500 ESPN.com beat writer. And I had somebody on the Twins field staff tell me in confidence as we got talking. We sat by each other randomly on the plane, and we had you know three and a half hours on the flight to Fort Myers just to BS and talk baseball. And this person said, hey, I love Ron Gardenhire. I love these teams, but a lot of whether it's Gardenhire or the veterans on this team, they just are a little bit more uptight on the day that we're playing the Yankees. Like, there's not that Lucy vibe. Everyone's sure. like kind of pressing, and there's a, there's a nervous energy that won't go away. And that the the leaders of the clubhouse, whether it was the manager or um, or the you know the the veteran established players, like they weren't doing anything to make it go away. And I think whether that matters five percent or fifty percent, I think it mattered for those Twins teams, and it would be a shame. If this Twins team, as it just gets going into its relevancy, fell into the same trap, I hope that doesn't happen because it would be really lame to see them go another decade and just get owned by the same damn Yankees franchise. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Well, I guess, like I said, I'm not going to argue too much here, but I'd <laughs> lean closer to the five percent than the fifty percent. Sure, it's I would too. Just a notion that I'm pulling from. I, like, let's not dive down this rabbit hole. But in Buster Olney's book about the last year of the Yankees dynasty. Their uh, last great dynasty. He talks about uh, uh, Mariano Rivera getting up to address the team after everyone was like calm, confident, psyched up, ready to go for. I believe it was a World Series game. Um, I'd have to go back and read the passage, but he basically then Mariano gives some sort of heartfelt address um, and mentions like God and predestiny and stuff like that, and it kind of like caught some players off guard, and they were like, "Well, hold on, Mo, we were like, we are ready." We were ready for this game. He had said something like, and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. We can't control it. And people are like caught off guard by that. And I think that was a World Series game they went out and lost. Uh, and just kind of like this weird air that was in the clubhouse before the game. But my only point is, when I was thinking about that very setting, when I was reading that book, I thought, 
Okay, but would the players have told you right after that speech, hey, we're going to lose this game, and if we do, that speech was part of the reason? Or is it just really easy to assign blame for bad play after the fact and go try to find something and scapegoat it? And I think it's a lot more <laughs> the latter than it is the former. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, I think we're we're closer to agreement on this than <laughs> than maybe it seems. But I was I was just especially annoyed after the three sure. losses in New York, sure. and lucky for the Twins, the Angels keep losing too. So before they we get to our, our losing right before we get to our Q and A session, did you have something else you wanted to dive into real quick? Here? Yes, I just have a quick social brag. Uh, big social media day for fifteen hundred ESPN today. The first one, not so much. The second one, I don't. I, I haven't told you. I hope you haven't seen this yet. Uh, earlier today, uh, Daryl Morey, the GM of the Rockets, was tweeting out that rant against stats nerds ruining football and baseball and take this with your Pythagorean theorem. And if you haven't seen the rant yet, you will in the next couple of days. You should go check it out. It's uh, epic blow up uh, uh, just saying that like stats nerds are ruining sports and I've been watching football for 40 years and your Pythagorean theorem says the offensive line does this and this and this and this, but I've been watching football for 40 years. And uh, anyway, Daryl Morey retweeted it, and I made a little joke. He he shot me back a tweet, so I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, oh, wow, and, Dar- wait, Daryl Morey shot you back a tweet. Yeah, yeah, uh, Matthew Collar and me. And that's actually the second part of the story is that Matthew Collar wrote a story today on the Vikings beat. If you don't follow Matthew Collar, you should. Matthew Collar wrote a story about Trey Wayne's slow start to the season and how he could make up for it by shutting down Deshaun Jackson, in which he wrote a lot of nice things about Deshaun Jackson, the Bucks receiver. <laughs> Apparently it uh, caught the eye of one Deshaun Jackson's mother because she took the 1500 tweet, shared the story, retweeted it, and tagged Deshaun and the NFLPA with Matthew's story. So the b- big social media day for 1500 ESPN. Big time, big time. Yeah, now now, now we just need Judd to, like, ruffle some hockey feathers. And, uh, Does he do that? Just every once in a while. Just every <laughs> once in a while. Or maybe they'll maybe maybe I'll go in and like start a fight online with the Twins TV play by play guy and see if I can get him to block me. Oh wait, that already happened earlier this <laughs> I was week. Say, do you do that? You <laughs> Sorry. guys are so predictable. Yeah, I uh, I think I think Dick Bramer took issue with one of my tweets about how I, I thought he was being too presumptive in his discussions about the Twins and Yankees wild card game as the Twins were getting bludgeoned by New York and uh, he wasn't happy so he blocked me on Twitter this week. I don't have a problem with Dick Bramer but I feel like that was a little thin-skinned and uh, I apologize if if I offended you Dick Bramer please unblock me so I can uh, so I can see your left-handed toast tweets after the Twins win down the stretch here. So um, you're saying is a big social media week, really, for 1500 ESPN. Yes. Hey, should we get into some uh, questions and answers from the fans on social media? We should in just a second, because I'd like to tell the audience about Luther Brookdale Toyota and the 2018 models that are on the lot before we get into some of the Q&A here. Uh, Luther Brookdale Toyota is one of the main sponsors that powers the 1500 ESPN collection of podcasts, and this one in particular Touch them all. So if you uh, go in and give them your business, first of all, I promise you that you will love working with them as my family and I have for 30 plus years. But you'll also be helping the Touch Em All podcast and helping us keep our mics on so we can talk twins with you as they become relevant once again here in 2017. But I can tell you every two or three years, they upgrade the bells and whistles and technology and the look of uh, of the uh, various Toyota models and the 2018 Camrys and Corollas, etc., are on the lot. So check them out. 
at LutherBrookdaleToyota.com or on the corner of 694 and Brooklyn Boulevard. Here's what you may have missed on a recent Scoop podcast with Doogie. Twins Hall of Famer Tory Hunter. Could you have come close to 13.85 seconds on an inside-the-park home run? Hell to the no. No <laughs> chance. <laughs> no chance. I mean, Buston's his speed is world-class. There's not too many people in the world that probably can beat him running. Are you like a proud papa, Tory? You know, seeing him now I, succeed at the plate? Man, I'm, I'm a proud papa in many ways, man. I, just watching him. You know, and, and, you know, giving my input and my imparting to him, and I'm pretty sure he had, like, Doug McCavage, and everybody's had imparted in that young kid or giving them different things in, in different situations. But I have a lot of guys in the major leagues that I'm proud of, Matt, uh, Matt Carpenter, you know, Matt Kemp, and Trout, all these guys that I've been parted in. I am a proud big brother or a papa because Buster can't get, be my son, by the way. You can find the Scoop podcast on the 1500ESPN.com podcast page, or on iTunes, or really wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we've got a question from Rick here, and this is on my Facebook page. I sent out questions both on my Facebook and on Twitter. I got a lot of responses on Twitter, some good ones on Facebook that I want to make sure I get into. And Rick, Rick on Facebook wants to know, who do you see as next year's closer options for the Twins? We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but the second part of the question is why I wanted to address it. He says, and will Tyler Duffy and Ryan Presley have to earn their way onto the team next year? Now, I've said this in the past, whether it's in columns or on podcasts, I think the Twins should look outside the organization for next year's closer. Now, I don't know what the free agent market's going to look like. I don't know what trade potentials will materialize. I'm admittedly just not fully up to speed on that yet because I'm covering a postseason push here for the Twins. Um, But on the second part of it, the Tyler Duffy-Ryan Presley thing is interesting because both of them have capability and just I don't know that they've fully lived up to it this year. Tyler Duffy, I think, is probably in the bullpen next year. Um, He's going to be an arbitration – or not an arbitration guy. He's a pre-arbitration guy, so I think – uh, if I'm not mistaken, he does not need to get a big raise this year. So it's pretty easy to take him to spring training, say, you know, kind of a couple-year veteran at this point and compete for a spot in the bullpen. Presley, on the other hand, is going to need to get a little bit of a raise. And if you don't think that you can harness that great raw stuff, maybe you just have to let him walk. And the problem is he goes and succeeds somewhere else because he's probably got the best fastball in the bullpen and the best curveball in the bullpen. But – at some point, you do have to put it together, and when you start to get expensive, uh, I question the merits of that. I, personally, I'd be for bringing Ryan Presley back and just getting somebody who can harness his potential, but uh, I don't know. If you don't think you can do that if you're the Twins, maybe you do look elsewhere in, in the bullpen next year. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and I, I'm, I'm mostly in lockstep. I'll start with just the guys who are in-house right now. I, I think Tyler Duffy is on the team a hundred percent. I don't know if he makes the the twenty five man roster for sure out of spring training, but he is a pre arbitration guy, which means he's making pretty close to the league minimum. He's going to make around five hundred thousand dollars in two thousand eighteen. So you can take another league minimum flyer on Tyler Duffy. You're right about Ryan Presley. So he's making one point one million dollars this year, and so he'll be going into his second year of arbitration, which means he'll probably go up to two ish to maybe three million dollars. Do you want to pay a couple million dollars? I mean, he's 
that's the disappointing part. He's got the stuff. He definitely has the stuff to be one of your bullpen bridge guys between the seventh and the ninth innings. I would tend to take one more flyer on him if it was $2 million, understanding fully that I'm just going to have to light that money on fire in May if it's not working and move on to the next thing because next season should be a year in which you're contending from the beginning of the year. You can't afford to just go in and give away outs in the sixth, seventh innings. I do have a list of free agent relievers for this offseason from MLBTradeRumors.com, and there's just so many to sift through. I just think you have to find one of them. The problem is when you go out and sign a closer in free agency, there's still a tax attached to it. If you were to sign a non-closer, just a seventh or eighth inning setup guy, you could probably sign one for for four or five million dollars, a pretty solid one, maybe an eight or nine year contract uh, over over a couple years. But if you add that closer role to the you know to the to the resume or to the uh, to the proverbial job description. You're going to wind up paying more money. I almost wish that you just you would just change it to bullpen by committee all the time, and you're going to be the ace reliever, so you don't have to pay $10 million for a potential closer. But um, there are some names on here that are sort of interesting. Like Tyler Clippard at 33, he's been mostly really good throughout his career except for this year. Could you buy low on a Tyler Clippard at age 33 for like 5 or $6 million and make him your closer? Um Trying to see who else is on this list. Pat Neshek is 37. I don't know hmm. if he'd be my closer for next year. Addison Reed at 29 has closing experience, and he's good late in games for the most part. I don't know if there's an injury thing going on with him. I, I can't recall. So there's guys out there. Um, you know, Fernando Rodney's 41 and was closing for the majority of this season. But I, I'm with you. I think you sign a closer somewhere or trade for one uh, this offseason. Some good news. And before we get to another question, though, they've got some legit bullpen pieces here i think trevor hildenberger is a real find in yeah. the bullpen he might be your setup guy next year taylor rogers has been yeah up and down this year he definitely hit a rough patch in the middle of the season but i think you trust him i do wonder on the left side if they're going to get ryan o'rourke back early enough in the year to really count on him next year but don't forget about ryan o'rourke out with tommy john surgery right now um ryan presley we talked about tyler duffy we talked about Alan Buznitz has been hit or miss, but I really like his stuff, and I think if he can get sort of that fastball uh, to to pair with a get-me-over-curveball for a strike, then then he's a valuable guy potentially in the middle of game. So, like, they, they have some pieces to play around with. Um, I just think that at the very back end, I mean, your best reliever right now is Trevor Hildenberger, and if he can be your second best reliever, you have a better bullpen than you had the day before. So I don't know. Maybe that's too much hand-wringing for a position that might not matter while the Twins are still in the postseason race. Um, but it, it was an interesting question. I keep getting it every single week, so I figured we'd address it. Yeah, for sure. I I, I was just going through the right-handed list. There's a whole left-handed reliever list, too, that I didn't sure. even get to here. So we can we can do that more this offseason. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's see. James wants to know. James had a good question last week, too. He says, which Twins player has the most Smash Mouth songs on their phone? <laughs> Speculative, or do you have sourcing on this? Uh, I, I tried to tap a couple sources, but then I got a call here uh, that the podcast was ready to rock. So... I haven't heard back on those yet. Uh, I would say Buddy Buddy Boshear seems like he might have gone through a smash mouth (laughs) phase like in junior high. Okay. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, I'm trying to think who would be it for me. You know, actually, Joe Maurer seems pretty generic when it comes to pop culture and, well, and a lot of things. I'll do I think Joe would even agree with that. So it's very possible Joe Maurer has a couple Smash Mouth songs on his playlist. Yeah, and I was going to look for some of the older guys, too, because I think I kind of missed the Smash Mouth wave. Maybe I didn't, and maybe I'm just culturally aloof you but... didn't you didn't miss much it's okay okay <laughs> well, right. i guess i just have to double down on your guess it was going to be mauer like a chris jimenez kind of guy <laughs> but, um, but chris jimenez would only have smash mouth ironically on his on his uh totally music device yes. joe mauer would, yes. would have it on there because he likes smash mouth unironically <laughs> uh brendan wants to know will they beat the yankees in a one-game playoff we spent way too long at the beginning of the podcast talking about that here's my bold call if they get the Yankees, Phil, and it's not Severino, I think the Twins win that wild card game. Not only get there, then they go to New York and they win that game. Okay, after all my talk about the Twins having uh, the bat rack up their keisters and they're too nervous to play the Yankees and they stare at the pinstripes, I agree, and I don't care who's starting. I think the Twins, <laughs> I think the Twins beat the Yankees in the coin flip game. And oh. my my prediction on the radio show is they win the wild card spot. They beat the Yankees, and then they win game one of the ALDS and get our hopes up, and then they fade out, and they eventually okay. lose the series. But it'll leave All a right. great taste in everyone's mouth for next year by just beating the Yankees. Wow. All right. That's a very bold proclamation. Um, Eric wants to know, and this is a good question. He says, at this point, we might argue on this, actually. At this point, has Gibson surpassed Cologne as the third starter for this team? And I think he has. I, I trust Kyle Gibson in a must-win game tonight uh, more than I do Bartolo Cologne. I do too, but for much different reasons that, than you do. I trust Kyle Gibson because he brings, on average, about thirteen and a half runs of support with him. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. All so right. I would I would roll with Kyle Gibson, just knowing that the offense will be will be well out in front. Fantastic. Uh, so if that's the case, maybe he starts the wild card game in New York. Just get thirteen runs on the board and get it over with. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just 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 go five innings and give up seven earned on uh, on twelve hits and have a comfortable lead. <laughs> A um, couple of questions here on the firing of A-ball manager Doug Minkiewicz, and I'd say we could address that quickly, but we also spent an entire podcast talking about the Doug Minkiewicz firing. It's on the Touch 'Em All feed. If you're listening to this, go find the uh, previous episode where we talked about Doug Minkiewicz. Both Phil and I were kind of – we I think we disagreed a little bit, just sort of like on the general terms, but both of us were very clearly down on the side of – there's got to be more to it than just we wanted to go in a different direction or we wanted to bring in our own guy. So I don't know if you want to expand on that, Phil, or move to the next one. No, I think we spent over a half hour on it on the, the episode before this, like you said. So if you want – if you, I hate to give the old like run around, hey, you're listening to this podcast, but go yeah, check out no. this other podcast. But we literally spent over a half hour just talking straight Doug Minkiewicz firing. So uh, that answers it better than we could in this Q&A. Fair point. So Trisha wants to know this. This one's on Twitter. Trisha says, uh, "Will you be providing the alcohol needed to get through the playoff game if we get there?" <laughs> um, maybe, maybe that might, sounds a little expensive. I would say we'll provide the brown paper bags to breathe into for sure. for the playoff game. But I, we're we're very we're, a lot of us are very new to this, right? This is this would be if they could hang on here. And they're they're leading this game eight to one as we sit and watch this Twins Tigers game. So they're going to have a two and a half game lead. But um, you know, it's amazing that they opened Target Field in 2010. So there's been eight seasons of baseball played there, and they've had one. I'm sorry, two playoff games and one playoff series since then. Mm. So this is 
just just getting October relevant baseball would be an amazing step after a stretch of futility that I'm not sure we all saw coming in 2010. In fact, going into the 2011 sure. season, I remember writing a story about how like the regular season is a formality. Just get back to the playoffs and let's just fast forward to the next Yankees twin series and see what yeah. happens. And and if you, if you would have asked me, and obviously I was dead wrong and oblivious and naive and all those things, if you would have asked me going into the 2011 season, percent chance the Twins don't play playoff baseball again until at least 2017, I would have laughed. I would have said, how is that possible? Justin sure. Morneau is going to be back at some point here. He's getting back from the concussion. Joe Maurer is just one season removed from an MVP award. And you got all these big, highly touted uh, draft picks. And like, well, Kyle Gibson is a, is rising through the minor leagues. And, and Aaron, what about Aaron Hicks, right? But... Here we are, seven years later, and the Twins are still trying to get back to the playoffs. It's funny, Phil. You and I see things very similarly, and especially when it comes to baseball. But if you would have asked me in 2010 the percent chance they don't go back to the postseason, that's where we're different. I, I would have said that it was non-zero. Of course you would have. Yeah, yes. That's, that's, <laughs> just, that's my safety blanket. <laughs> uh, you know what? Trisha actually has another uh, follow-up question. Um, she says, for real. So maybe the alcohol question was a joke. Um, my, my answer is officially no, I can't afford that for, uh, for everybody who thinks that they would need it, but she wants to know since Sano's injury, who do you feel stepped up the most in his absence? And she points out the two obvious ones that everybody's been talking about and says Buxton and Polanco have cooled off some since their August tear. She's right about that, but, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you take a stab. I've definitely got my guy who's been the most, uh, I don't want to say improved, but the most impressive and consistent, and you would not be here without him, uh, especially as they get late into September here. Uh, well, Eddie Rosario, uh, he for sure comes to mind. I, I don't know statistically who has stepped up the most, if you were to actually go through and be you know, 100% objective about it, since Big sure. Snow went down. But, but well, Brian Dozier, I think, has just, has just, for the last four years, his... His numbers at the end of the year have become so incredible, and when he's hot, it's just this new level of normal for him that I almost forgot about him. But Brian Dozier has been incredible over the past two months, so yep. so they they wouldn't be here without without a lot of guys. In fact, yeah, they've needed true. every single contribution from everybody on the roster who's who's at least contributed positively. But Eddie true. Rosario, in particular, and his ability to to uh, to keep the strikeouts in check and to get on base. And then Brian Dozier and his ability to just flip the switch for two months every year and put up crazy numbers. Yep, those two guys have been good. None better than Joe Maurer, in my opinion. He's been the yeah, rock in the middle of yeah. the Twins lineup. I actually, just while we were kind of looking around for some answers there, I, I looked them up. Um, obviously, all three of those guys, great second half. So I've got their September-October numbers here from Fangraphs. Uh, just quickly, if you are going the objective route, my subjective answer is Joe Maurer. Let's see if it holds up. Um, objectivity reigns. Eddie Rosario in September hitting 271 with a 299 OBP. Oh, that's surprising. Well, I, Joe I Maurer, I saw D Dustin Morris, the Twins PR director, sent out Joe Maurer over the past two months is hitting about 400. It's been pretty incredible, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where Eddie makes it back is in the slugging department, where he's slugging five fifty seven. Wow, good for uh, pretty good uh, three forty seven woba uh, in the month of September here. Dozier, uh, not quite as good September, but a really great August. Uh, a four twenty seven woba in August for Dozier, which is absurd. 
Uh, that's fallen a little bit here in September. He's hitting 233, 329. Again, a good slugging percentage, 479. You know and, what? Uh, oh, go ahead. Go Sorry. Ahead. No, no, you finish. Maurer, just to round out those threes, hitting 375 in September with a 418 on base and a 514 slugging. That's good for a 390 Woba. That's. That's superstar territory. You know what's what's amazing? So we had Roy Smalley on the radio show earlier today, and I asked him because there are a lot of similarities between this Twins team and the underdog nature of it and even the win total they're going to wind up with in the regular season and the 1987 team that Roy Smalley was a part of that won the World Series. And I said, okay, you guys went into the playoffs and you faced off against a Detroit Tigers team that had the best record by far in the American League, a, a much better record than you, and Jack Morris in his prime as as the top starting pitcher on their roster. What's the key in general to, to, to playing that David versus Goliath role and coming out in front? And and I say, I mean, aside from just the fact that it's baseball and you know anyone can beat anyone in any in any given day. Like, what's the what's the deeper reason for why you guys are able to to slay some giants? And he said. He put it very sim- simply, and I love this. You you just have to have the the core of your team, whether it's your lineup or or your like your best two starting pitchers, performing near the top of their capabilities for a shorter stretch. And that may seem obvious or intuitive, but if this Twins team were to face off against the Astros in a, in a five or a seven game series or the Indians, the general consensus would be. Well, well, there's you know zero chance when you look at the rosters. But if the Twins were to perform at their 90th percentile for even a week and the Astros were to perform at something less than their 90th percentile or the Indians, they absolutely could win four games out of seven or three games out of five or beat the Yankees in a coin flip game. So I love the way that he put it, and it made me think about it when I'm looking at this Twins team. Like, would I take this Twins team against any of their potential playoff counterparts? No, I wouldn't, but... Uh, but when you when you when you simplify it down, and it's Irvin Santana versus like Luis Severino, or uh, Irvin Santana versus you know wh- whoever else, even Chris Sale for the Boston Red Sox, I'd rather have Chris Sale. But is the gap wide enough to where you'd say, oh, zero chance? That's still like a sixty forty game. So sure. interesting perspective from Roy Smalley. Yeah, that's good stuff, especially from a guy who's been there before. And, and I guess as we speak to getting closer to it, Joseph asked a good question that I think is relevant here to your Red Sox example. We don't have to dive too deep into the weeds here, but Joseph wants to know, how do the Twins set up their rotation for the final Detroit series with the wild card game looming? And I think you just keep it on schedule how it is. I'll get to that in a second. But with the Yankees bumping Severino up so that they can hope to start him a couple more times, I don't know who they're going to face. Right now, It's as we record this podcast, the Red Sox have a three-game lead, so I'm assuming that they're going to face the Yankees, but who knows? Baseball is weird. Maybe they're facing the Red Sox. I haven't done the math to go figure out how the Red Sox have their rotation set up, but I have done it for the Twins and for the Yankees, actually. Um, the Twins, I don't think you change anything. I think you keep it all as is. The uh, trick is that with an off day, you skip Mejia, so you got four starters that you feel kind of good about right now in Santana, Barreos, Kyle Gibson, Bartolo Colon. You keep those guys on their regular rest, and I've got it right in front of me here. Uh, that would mean Mejia's next, the next time that you need him is actually the 30th of September. So that's the second to last day of the season. And then the guy who's on track to start the final game of the regular season would be Bartolo Colon, which 
would bring back Irvin Santana for the wild card game. So if you're asking how they set up that final uh, Detroit series, it actually works out kind of nicely because you get Cologne, Gibson, and Irv for the Cleveland series. You'd like to get at least one of those games, maybe two if you can. And then the final Detroit series is just Barrios, Mejia, Cologne, hmm. which leads you perfectly into Irvin Santana for the wild card game, which I think is the perfect scenario for the Twins. So ESPN.com has it different, which doesn't mean that it's right. I don't know. I, I was confused by this. So Mejia tonight, and then uh, tomorrow night Gibson. So tell me where mm-hmm. es- this is where. Tell me where ESPN has it wrong. Mejia- well, I don't know what ESPN has. No, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll throw them out at you here. I've got sure. I've got the ESPN thing. If you if you have your rotation, I'll well, let's just compare. Yep. So they've got Mejia tonight, obviously. Kyle Gibson tomorrow, so Friday night. Irvin Santana on Saturday and Barrios on Sunday to round yep. out the Detroit series. And then Cologne, Mejia, Gibson, but they're not oh, account they're not accounting for the off day on Monday in which you do, so you right. would you would not go back to Mejia there, right? You'd they go, are assuming that Mejia has earned himself another start here, and I think that's far from a given. I haven't right. heard this from the Twins, but just sort of the way I'm penciling it out on my scratch notepad here, and based on kind of what I've heard, I'd be much more inclined to skip that Mejia start and go Cologne, Gibson, and Irvin Santana out of that yes. break, if for no other reason that it lines up Santana really well. Like if you don't skip a start or skip a day or skip a, the fifth starter, it gets a little awkward with trying to figure out how do you slide in Irvin Santana into your must-win game. But if you do what I do and skip Mejia until you absolutely need him and then plug him in in that fifth starter spot in a day that you just need to fill a hole, that actually lines you up really nicely to keep the guys that you trust on regular rest and keep Irvin Santana fresh for that wild card game on his regular rest I don't see why you'd go any other direction. I think that's yeah. the sensible plan. I think what I would do is I would I would handcuff Mejia to Cologne, and the first sign of trouble for Cologne in his last two starts, if he gets two more starts, or maybe he only gets one, he might get two. Uh, yeah. th- then you would just bring, and I know they've been doing that with Dylan G, but you could you could even yep. put Mejia into that mix too. Same deal. Yeah, I I would do that in the postseason. I'd try to make it work because you get another off day before that wild card game. Now, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I don't think too far. I think that the Twins are in good in a good spot. I'd come out of that with Irvin Santana, Jose Barreos, and Kyle Gibson if you could swing it. Yeah, I like it. Let's do uh, two or three more quick-fire questions here and then uh, wrap it up for this episode. Okay, we got some more free agency questions, but I'm going to be honest, Phil. I'm way more interested in covering a postseason team than yeah. I am. Let's say no, no disrespect to the people asking these yep. questions, but we'll because we'll totally dive into those during the offseason. Yeah, we've got plenty of time in uh, late October and then through November to try to get some of that stuff sorted out. And trust me, we'll talk about it a lot. Um, let's see if I can pull some up quickly here. Um, well, our buddy uh, Twins Anonymous wants uh, Brian Dozier moved down in the lineup. He says he's just hit a lot of solo dingers. Hmm. Twins don't have a prototypical leadoff man or three-hitter. Should you move Brian Dozier down? I think at this point, for the rest of the season, he's a leadoff hitter. I know it's where he feels most comfortable. Whether he says that or not, it just is like a pretty clear indication that Molitor has constantly stuck with him this whole year. So, I mean, I know it's not fun hitting a bases-empty home run, especially in important games, but 
I don't think you mess with it at this point. The Twins lineup is just kind of clicking really well right now. Yeah, I, I do like the idea that, that Paul Molitor with Derek Falvey and Thad Levine are loading the top three spots in the order with the best hitters, or the top four spots. I mean, you're getting some combination of Brian Dozier, Joe Maurer, and then depending on the lefty-righty matchups or whoever happens to be dialed in for that stretch, Byron Buxton batting third, Jorge Polanco, Eddie Rosario. They've used, I believe, 126 different lineups this season, which is Yuck. amazing, according to baseball <laughs> yes. reference. Like, that's not even yeah. – how is that even possible to use that yeah. many different lineups? But, but like, the only – I think those – I think you have to have Maurer and Dozier hitting really early in your lineup to maximize potential uh, outcome or output. I, I just feel like – if you flipped Maurer to the leadoff spot and and had him get on base, his base running has fallen off so much speed-wise. Brian Dozier at least gives you a chance to get on base. And keep in mind, he's hitting with guys on base once in a while, too, when mm-hmm. the bottom of the order comes around. Not that the bottom of the order is amazing. So I don't know. I, I, I guess if Jorge Polanco, if you thought that he had reached a new level of of getting on base at like a 350 clip on a regular basis, and maybe he has. You could make a case that he could hit leadoff and then Dozier could bat second or bat third and then Joe Maurer could bat second in front of Dozier. But right now, the lineup seems to be producing quite well the last two months. Yeah, one of the best lineups in baseball since the All-Star game. I, I understand the temptation to tweak it and further optimize it. Trust me, I think about it a lot. But I also think we spend myself included, spend too much time hand-wringing over a lineup that's generally been really good, and you just put a bunch of good hitters at the top of the order and let them do their thing. A um, couple more here, Phil, and we'll shut her down for the day. Ellis wants to know if the Twins will make the playoffs. You're on the record as saying they'll yes. make it to the division series and win a game. I, I say they'll make the playoffs, flip a coin against the Yankees. Uh, I don't think it's like a mismatch or anything, but I guess I don't have the confidence as you to call a Game one win in the ALDS that they're not even guaranteed to get to. That's pretty bold. Well, we can't all have Pedro Serrano sized <laughs> grapefruits on this podcast. <laughs> or Sam Cassell onions dance. Yep. Uh, if if it comes true, uh, a couple questions that are related, and we'll we'll wrap up with that. Um, Donnie wants to know: Do you think Falvey is sandbagging this season because he wants to fire Molitor? Uh, statement: He's done nothing to help this team. And then somebody on Facebook who was it here. <laughs> Uh, James on Facebook, uh, on my Facebook page, Derek Wetmore MLB, says, a year into the new front office, how are they doing? Where could they improve themselves and the team? I know, I know, I know this is way too big of a question to address in quick fashion. So maybe we'll do this on another podcast. But generally, my thoughts this season for the front office, while not flawless, I've been overwhelmingly coming down on the side of, they're doing a great job right now, managing the roster, getting something out of an otherwise nothing pitching staff, and really just sort of elevating some of the young players to not maybe not even their highest height, but to a point close to their maximum potential. I've been I've been pretty thoroughly impressed in the what nine ten months yeah. that Derek and Thad Levine have been on the job. You know, this is a terrible analogy, but if you were to think of a Major League Baseball organization from top down, inside out, like a vehicle, like a high-end sports car, and and the, the stuff under the hood and the stuff on the interior that you don't see when you're maybe next to that sports car at a stoplight or when you're, when you're just sort of driving by it and looking at the exterior, 
the interior and under the hood is what Derek Falvey and Thad Levine have been working on for the last 10 months just because they haven't added a flashy spoiler or a new paint job, a new starting pitcher, uh, a new big free agent bat doesn't mean that they haven't done things to help the team. They have implemented so many new processes behind the scenes. They've stripped away some of the old thinking, and they're hiring new, fresh thinkers to help run the front office. And they're also going through every single level from rookie league all the way up to the major leagues. And they're scouting differently. They're communicating those scouting reports and communicating process differently. They're coaching differently, or at least they're hiring coaches who coach differently. So, again, like, have they been perfect? No. Do I still think they made the right decision at the trade deadline with the information they had at that time? Yes, I do. And 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 they, they've happened to hit on the 5% chance to make the playoffs. Look at their record since they waved the white flag. Yeah. In uh, in late July, early August. I mean, they, they've been one of the better teams in baseball. So did you think, if you could honestly say, as a fan out there who's who's critical of Derek Falvey and Thad Levine, if you could honestly say that on July 31st you thought the Twins would get white hot and play some of the best baseball of any team in the league over the next two months, then congratulations to you, pat on the back, hire you is what Derek Falvey and Thad Levine should do. Yeah, uh, to the first question of is he sandbagging it to fire Molitor, I mean, that answer is no, but uh, I still don't know. We don't know what's going to happen with the manager. I'll say at this point, Phil, given how they've played here and backs up against the wall more than once and, like you said, have become one of the best teams in baseball, really. Uh, you could add a pitcher or two or three this off season, and you start to feel a lot better about things. I-, I will say that at this point where they are, I would be surprised – if Molitor is let go as the manager. Uh, it's not to say that it won't happen or that it can't happen. I've definitely been wrong before, and I've been surprised before. But after what the Twins have done, he's going to be in the conversation for American League Manager of the Year. I think Tito will win it, but I think Molitor's you know, a very strong contender. And so <laughs> to ask him to have done any better, I, personally, I feel like would be an unfair expectation and uh, you'd be making the manager decision for different reasons. So whether you like him, hate him, think, think he bunts too much, don't think he's good at handling the bullpen, whatever, don't like that he doesn't get ejected from games because he's not fiery, <laughs> I understand all the criticisms of, Mauer, or, uh, of Molitor. Uh, I get it. But I think that as we sit here today on September whatever, September 20th, what day is it even? I, I lose track of days here. In the uh, it's, 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 it's the 21st. It is the 21st. So there you go. Point proven. Here, here we are. September I count the 21st. days down by just using the Twins magic number. That's what my calendar is. <laughs> yes, exactly right. That's I, And then I rip the number off the calendar. 